such words as the Lord, the perfectly enlightened one, sometimes we place that in the, the grand perspective of an over, overlord, overlooking everything, uh, the whole, all creation and the whole universe is how we generally use that word in Christianity. So sometimes Western people feel a bit averse to, to if they've been, if they've uh, rebelled against Christianity or the our childish beliefs in in God, then such words as the Lord, the perfectly enlightened one, and all that homage uh, to the Lord sounds like a throwback to the old Sunday school lessons. So. Sometimes people feel can be quite, quite averse or rebellious against uh, chanting, or the devotional practices of that uh, we find in Buddhism. Many people, Western people, are attracted to Buddhism because they think you don't have any of that rubbish in it. I met people who, who think uh, like Zen. Uh, when Zen first became fashionable in California years ago, many people really took to Zen because it kind of, you know, you could uh, spit on the Buddha Rupas, you could, all these were signs that you were attached to rites and rituals and beliefs and doctrines and you could, uh, you know, be uh, sacrilegious and, and uh, Abusive to the to the uh, kind of sacred forms that one re- conceitedly regarded as superstitious or or untrue, and the the people would take the uh, stories out of Zen masters, where they you know would do something outrageous and say that Zen is being outrageous, uh, where that that this attachment to a kind of iconoclasm where, where we, we just want to throw away. But in reflection, we, we, can take, we can regard the Lord, the perfectly enlightened one, in, in that kind of macrocosmic way. That's one way of reflecting and using it. That's not wrong, but say, in reflective meditation and contemplation of Dhamma, we we apply that inwardly. It's a simile, the use of simile. So we, we take refuge in the Lord and homage to the Lord, that which in us is the Lord, or that which knows that which oversees and knows, attentive, wise, knowing of the way it is. It's not saying I'm the Lord or the Lord is in me. It's it's the use of our ability to use metaphor, simile. So that in in each one of us, there's the, the Lord or that which oversees and knows, is not deluded. It's noble, perfectly enlightened, 
We're not thinking of, we're not, right now we're not thinking of, of uh, perceiving a lord as some external overlord outside there. Nor is this a personal lord, like my lord as opposed to your lord, or my inner self as, as if it was somehow separate from your inner self. Those kind of words can be very confusing. It, it reinforces the separateness, the seeming and apparent separateness uh, that we feel through identification with the body and thoughts and perceptions of ourselves. So in mindfulness, when there's mindfulness in that mindfulness <coughs> wisdom, sati and panya, that's the Lord, that which knows and oversees everything, that knows what's happening, knows the way it is. So when we chant namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma samputasa, this, this can be like a kind of homage to some kind of abstraction or possibility of a, a Supreme Lord on the macrocosmic plane of totality. But, but also this can be used as a reminding, a remembrance, and a and a modern Californian jargon, a celebration of the, of the Lord, <laughs> that in us which, which, overs, which knows and is awake. So that's why I keep, keep trying to bring to your attention how to use language and images, concepts. That, because this ability to, to perceive and, and have language and create images is quite a, uh, a magical gift we have as human beings. And yet, we oftentimes use it to, to just uh, drive ourselves crazy. We use it to, to make ourselves negative and depressed. We use it to hurt others, to speak badly and, and uh, harm and deceive others. But used in the right way, the right understanding, then we begin to appreciate it as a miraculous function that we have as human beings. Now use of simile, say, in regards to the conditioned and the unconditioned. If we're talking about absolute unconditioned, as if, you know, in uh, then we then somehow that remains so kind of abstract in our experience of life, absolute total unconditionedness as as uh, in that way tends to seem so remote a possible uh, as a realization that we uh, sometimes uh, don't know how to 
uh, see the, or uh, say, really experience and realize unconditionedness within the uh, restrictions and uh, boundaries of our human state. Because we're looking at it in too, too grand a way, too exalted, too total a way. So we use simile again, like, like uh, I've talked about form and space. I'm not saying the space in this room is, is absolutely unconditioned in kind of some grand totality. But it, because when we close our eyes, we can't see the space anymore in the room. So one could uh, think that that's, that uh, it couldn't possibly be it. But as a reflection, an investigation of the pattern of the way things are, of the forms relating to space, then we begin to, to see the, the, the relationship in a very real and concrete way. Just like the, the breath, uh, contemplating the, the inhalation, exhalation, the arising and the ceasing, as the, the pattern of all conditioned phenomena, the arising, the ceasing, The breath arises out of what? It's not permanent, is it? It's, it's, a, it's a rhythm. It, it arises, and yet there's, it, it arises out of... The mind stops, doesn't it? We can't quite, we can't quite perceive what it is, but there's certainly a realization, an unknowing that isn't uh, uh, that transcends the breathing itself. We can, we can observe the breath because the breath is not self. The breath is not me. If I were my breath, I would not, it would not be possible for me to contemplate it because the breath can't contemplate itself. At least mine can't. It's the knowing, isn't it? The, the, that which is awake, aware, that can notice, pay attention, fix upon such things as the breathing of the body and sustain attention on it and reflect upon it. The beginning, the, the peak of the inhalation, the beginning of the exhalation, the end. And then there's a gap, isn't there? where there, there, there's no breath, then it starts. When you contemplate the, the uh, form and space with vision, eye consciousness, contemplate the, like the spaces between people rather than, than spend the or, you know, trying to just notice or not notice people or things, really 
determined to, to just pay attention to, say, the spaces between the people as a diff, just a different way of reflecting or the space above people's heads. Or the, just how the, the spaces around things and, or just space in general that, that's contained or seemingly contained the space within the, the, the four walls of this room. And then the space, we can be, then we see that, that the, actually the building is in the space. Space does not have any quality other than space, spaciousness. Space doesn't excite the mind, does it? It doesn't, it doesn't excite us, it's not interesting, it's not red, white or blue, it's not male or female, it's not good or bad, it's it, the, these kind of qualities that somehow are irrelevant to space. So when we reflect and contemplate space, it, the mind goes towards a calm because the, the actual perception of space is, is not one to arouse a, uh, extreme thoughts or feelings, emotions. Spaciousness, emptiness is calm and peaceful. When we look at the things in the room that can excite and repel us. We can, we can feel interested, fascinated, attracted, critical, averse, repelled, enraged, bored, Doubtful, all kinds of, of emotional states can arise in regards to the things, the objects that we see. Now to, to reflect on space, then you withdraw you, 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 your attention from the objects. Doesn't mean you close your eyes, but you, you're, not, you're not concentrating on the objects, on a, this person or that thing. So it's not getting rid of, of the of the conditions or rejecting them. It's just not, not taking any interest in them and using the concept of space to bring your attention to, to the space, say, just in this room. So that's the simile again for the conditioned and the unconditioned. Somebody in Australia one time, uh, somebody that was in, uh, that had an education in physics, was arguing with me about this because he he took everything quite uh, in, as, a, as a scientific fact. He said, "Well, space is still conditioned, and, uh, fair enough, but I mean it's relatively unconditioned in the in the in the uh, in the in the form of simile. It's not." I'm not ab say making absolute, saying it's absolute, but it's relatively absolute. <laughs> uh. 
Then with the, the sound of silence, the, the nada, called the, the nada sound, the ringing background sound. That's, I use that for the, as like uh, eternity or infinity. Where it's, it's just, it seems to be non-stop. And then sound can be reflected into, and thought can be, can, has a background for uh, uh, like space for form, the 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 not a sound is is like the space for your thoughts and other sounds. Like you can hear the the cry of the uh, peacock, relating to the to the nada to the sound of silence. Your own thoughts, can't they? They can, they can, uh, what I think, I can think uh, whatever I'm thinking is related to the sound of silence. When the thoughts cease, there's still the sound of silence. It gives you that perspective, emptiness, where, where, the, uh, where the thoughts have ceased, but there's still this the Lord aware, the awareness of non-thinking and that uh, sound of silence helps to to contemplate that, contemplate no thought. To see thought and by deliberately thinking and, and the space around thought, the interstices between words, you can you can see that like just a simple sentence, uh, some kind of neutral sentence like "I am a human being," and you choose to deliberately think this sentence. And before you think it, you 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 fix your attention on the sound of silence. Then you start thinking "I." And you notice that after you've thought I, there's, there's, there's nothing. There's the sound of silence. Am. A. Human. Being. Nothing. Just the ringing silence. So, so that also helps to to realize that the that thought itself is uh, is just something that comes and goes very quickly in the mind and it's uh, and we have we have a, a perspective on it rather than just trying to get rid of thinking trying to uh, to suppress it or reject it because we, we do think too much and we tend to, to be a kind of non-stop uh, inner, inner whisperings and chatterings and endless boring dialogues and judgments and opinions and 
fears and desires, isn't it? The human mind are just nattering away all the time. I remember just thinking, oh, I've started meditation. I think, God, won't you ever shut up? I remember being in this beautiful place in uh, Thailand, beautiful monastery, you know, out in the country in uh, so, so I loved uh, the, the natural beauty. This is paradise. So peaceful. It's just what I've always dreamed of, this ideal monastery. So peaceful, so beautiful. Didn't take long before the, the inner tyrants and all the natterings and boring old things kept, you know, coming into my mind. I wanted to sit there and delight and just kind of absorb into the beauty of, the, of nature. But instead, you think my mind was ever going to let me do that? Here we go. So I used to say, shut up! That didn't work. <laughs> I used to try to just sit there and, and just force myself not to think, just as an act of will. And, it just, and sometimes, you know, you could, you could just stop thinking through will, but then, then as soon as the will uh, kind of weakened, it all seemed to explode forth worse than ever. So it wasn't this suppressing thought, trying to make yourself not think, is, is worse than thinking. <laughs> so this is, the, the, this pattern, uh, there's a, in uh, one of the teachings of the Lord Buddha that really impressed me from, from the very beginning, was, uh, uh, I think it's in the Sangyutta Nikai, in the Pali Canon, the, the uh, statement that there is the unborn, uncreated, unoriginated, and there is the born, created, and originated, and that they, there's this relationship. If there was not the unborn, there could not be the born, and so forth. So this, this establishes the really the metaphysical position of, of the Buddha. This is a perfect metaphysical statement, actually. The created relating to the uncreated, the born to the unborn, the conditioned to the unconditioned. That's very clear and precise, a kind of perfect metaphysical uh, statement of reality, of what is real. Then, then we use, the, the, but to, to keep it on, the, on such terms as uncre created and uncreated tends to remain very much. That's where the danger with any metaphysical doctrine is that we tend to uh, to believe it 
only and not, not really apply it, not really investigate it. So the Buddhist teachings like the Four Noble Truths are to investigate that. To, for a realization, direct insight and realization of it, rather than just kind of think we understand because we understand the words. Self and no self. Atta and anatta. Atta means self, and anatta, a is a is a is a negation word. So anatta is no self. So investigate self and no self. Be somebody. Uh, listen inwardly. I am. Uh, I am an important person. And there's somebody, somebody has arisen, isn't there? And then, then when, when you're not thinking, I am an important person, reflect that there's no, there's no self anymore. Self depends upon the attachment to thoughts about self. When there's a, to be conceited and egotistical, you have to believe the, the, in, in, the, in the concepts of I am and me and mine. Uh, you have to believe that that's what, that, that I am this and I am that and I am not this and I am not that and I am good and I am bad and That 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 that, uh, that kind of absolutizes, and that the the sense of I am I am good is a maybe permanent assumption. Or I am bad, or I am not so good, or I am neither good nor bad is also still conceit. Because I am when 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 you. Let, when you see that, that the I am's, the conditions, the thoughts, the views, when they aren't operating, and there's this, the silence of the mind, the sound of silence, there's nobody. I am is, is, uh, is not operating anymore. There's awareness, there's intelligence, wisdom. That doesn't, that doesn't, uh, that's not ego, that's not self. Investigate that, just uh, be really egotistical as you can get. Think all the most conceited thoughts that you, as a modest person, you wouldn't dare ever want to admit into consciousness. <laughs> and just but let but but witness to it. So the Lord is 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 watching and listening, knowing, and so that this this is uh, this taking refuge in the Buddha, homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. And then then we can just listen to to say outrageous conceit as something that arises and ceases. 
or just the, the, the negative views we have about ourselves. I'm not good enough, I can't do it, I'm, I'm a hopeless case, I'm unlovable, I'm, nobody likes me, I'm so alone, I feel so unwanted, life has been unfair to me. And all that, then you can, the, 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 the complaining mind also, you can witness to, as, uh, as the, the condition ceasing in the unconditioned. So the, your, that, that intersection of time with the timeless. T.S. Eliot poem and quartets, so that you you begin to see to know that, reflect on that where the time and timeless meet. Consciousness itself is is uh, the subject-object experience. Subjectivity, objectivity. The subject relating to the object. So the I consciousness in the I, when that which impinges on the I, I contact and so forth, then there's I consciousness. Ear consciousness, nose consciousness, Tongue consciousness, body consciousness, mental consciousness. So that is interpreted from the assumption of a kind of permanent self, isn't it? The ego, the the belief in I am, the un having not investigated Dhamma, then we 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 uh, assume, make the assumptions that we are a person all the time. I am a personality. I'm, from the time I was born, I was this person, and now I'm this age and I'm still the same person. And I I'm, uh, I'm, uh, was born in the United States, so I'm permanently an American all the time, every moment of my life from the day I was born. That's uh, uh, just assumption. I'm an American forever, or I'm a man. It's a, I'm a permanent male, forever, for this life anyway. It was uh, somebody who read Aura said that in previous life I was a Roman Catholic nun in Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> But in this life, I, I don't, I, I am a, a, a Buddhist monk in England. <laughs> so this, just look at the, the assumptions you have about yourself as I am, look at the faults you have, the kind of things you don't like about yourself, for example. We assume that 
that these are kind of permanent defects. They're with us all the time. The faults are kind of, kind of latent, kind of subconscious things kind of hanging in, you know, that can erupt at any moment. Uh, and, and so we oftentimes are very frightened because we maybe have very unpleasant uh, uh, ideas about ourselves and the forces that are kind of hiding uh, in, within our hearts. Those evil forces of which men and women dare not speak. There's a kind of tremendous fear about it because we assume that it's, it's going to, uh, that it's there all the time. That's an assumption of the mind, isn't it? It's, you assume that, you, you, or you believe it. But when you, when you investigate Dhamma, then the mind is pure, empty, untainted. And then the conditions come and go, arising and ceasing. So that even the assumptions you're making that there's something kind of, I've got some kind of bad thing in me on a permanent basis, that assumption itself comes and goes in the mind. And uh, when you uh, bring this into a, a full conscious realization, then, then its power, kind of a powerful effect that, that frightens you and, hold, and, and kind of mesmerizes you, uh, that diminishes and fades out because you're seeing it as it is. You're, you're, that's the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. And that's the, the simile, isn't it? that we use in Buddhism from taking consciousness from me, uh, this person uh, with, with my body and my feelings and thoughts and memories to changing that using a more skillful perception of the Buddha seeing the Dhamma because that the Lord, the perfectly enlightened one, that which knows. Mindfulness, wisdom here and now, seeing the way it is, whatever subject to arising is subject to ceasing. The condition, the unconditioned, the intersection of time with the timeless. The, that is a, a neutral sound. It's neither, it's not exciting, nor is it uh, uh, painful or unpleasant. It's peaceful. So, so notice the peacefulness. Uh, when we, uh, space is peaceful. Emptiness is peaceful. No self, non-ego is peaceful. The sound of silence is peaceful. A couple of years ago, Venerable Amro and I went to this concert in Oxford. In uh, Sri Chinmoy came to England and and gave a peace concert. And he wanted, he especially wanted Buddhist monks to come 
in a tent, so he sent these. It was a free concert too. Wasn't there was no one had to pay anything to go to this concert, and they had it in the in that beautiful theater in Oxford University. What's the name of it? Sheldonian Theater. And so before the, the concert, he invited us for meditation and he came in a kind of, didn't look at anyone wearing kind of a pale blue silk pajamas. Didn't seem interested, he invited, we, they said he invited us, but he didn't seem at all interested in us. And just was, just sat, and, uh, just sat there and we all sat there. And then, uh, then we w- went into the theater, the Sheldonian theater, and the big kind of beautiful old uh, place. And three Chinmoy went up onto the stage and this kind of table with all these different musical instruments on the table, and you could kind of move, move the table around. It was one of these circular kind of things. You could just pull it, move, ar- move it around, and. He'd just choose an instrument and then he'd play a little bit and blow a few notes on a pipe or something. And, and then they had these, uh, this chorus of women who had these very crystalline voices, very pure sounds. But the music that he was playing uh, was totally unexciting. And uh, it was, people were becoming very, very restless. And after a few minutes, people just started walking out of the theater. Uh, and by half the time the, the half of the concert was over, I think about half the people left the theater. <laughs> Some quite angry. Some really angry. And so this is, this is an interesting turn of events because one's expectation of a peace concert, Sri Chinmoy, Indian guru, sitar music, and you're expecting kind of Ravi Shankar, a kind of virtuoso displays of kind of fantastic trills and sounds and exciting, uh, stimulating sounds that, that enrapture you and hold your attention and abs- absorb your attention. But instead, he was, the, the music was, was actually quite boring. It, it, it was totally, the, it was a completely unexciting music. And the reaction was people get angry and leave because they wanted to be excited. It was a peace concert understand, and free. <laughs> but uh, people didn't really want peace, did they? They wanted, they came to be excited, to be entertained, to have a good time. But when you concentrated on the music he was playing, when you put your, your attention onto the sound, you felt very peaceful. If you could concentrate and just give yourself up to the sounds that, that he was producing and these crystalline uh, 
voices of these women, uh, if you just listened and, and without expectation, you found very peaceful. So Sri Chinmoy was actually giving us a peace concert. <laughs> the real thing. <laughs> I thought it was quite brilliant. <laughs> but it was certainly a reflection of where people are, these kind of peacenik people coming in, you know, in the peace movement and anti-violence and anti-war and anti-nuclear and, and these strong-willed, uh, opinionated people that, that are trying to bring peace to the world. Many of them just couldn't stand when they were faced, confronted with real peace. This is why getting to notice the, the, uh, be aware of the, of peacefulness. What is peace? Peace is, is quite boring, actually. What my Paul, Thai people used to come from Bangkok, or they have a kind of busy, stress-filled life, and they come. See Ajahn Chan, they say, oh, it's so peaceful here. It's just wonderful. It's so quiet. It's just so, so peaceful. I think I could just stay here forever. And within a, within a day, are they all ready to leave? <laughs> Couldn't stand it. Uh, go back to Bangkok. <laughs> <laughs> so peace as an ideal is one thing, isn't it? Agreeable looking environment. <laughs> Not to me anyway. For this kind of body, you know, the way this body, this body is an earth body, isn't it? It belongs on planet earth. It's the child of mother earth. It's, uh, it's, it wants to, it survives on the things that grow out of the earth. It's, uh, it belongs on this planet. It's not going to survive very long or be very happy on another one because it belongs here. So even though it might sound, because we think we're so clever, we can imagine setting up these ideal kind of uh, uh, cities and futuristic uh, communities on, on uh, uh, other planets, we can imagine that as being possible. But as a re real experience, I think it'd be quite horrible. Especially if we have not learned any, used any wisdom in our life and we merely take our, our own greed and hatred to Mars. It's not going to be, it's going to be pretty horrible there. Say here, and we, we can see how pleasant of environment this planet is for our human form. It's here at the city of 10,000 Buddhas, isn't it? Just the beauty of the place, the trees and the sky and the, the weather and the, all that. How pleasant it is to be here physically. It's, it's a pleasant place to be physically. So that the wisdom to 
be able to use wisdom is, is, is the prerogative of our human state. This is what Buddha means. The Buddha presented his teaching uh, 2,500 years ago. So it, it's like, the, you know, that the possibilities for humanity to use wisdom have been, and no doubt before that, there was, there is still other possibilities. But this particular teaching has, has, which is a wisdom teaching, has been expounded by the Blessed One 2,500 years ago. And, and, and it's, the reason why it still is usable and makes sense to us is because it's based on universal truth, not on cultural values or just fashions and trends of an age or time. So we, we contemplate desire, we investigate, looking around it, seeing what does it feel like, what is the mood, I want something, I don't want, I like, I don't like. It's not fair. What does it feel like to have that inside you? It's not fair. Uh, They, somebody, they like him better than they, they do me. It's not fair. What, is that, what does that feel like when you really reflect on that, on that statement and that feeling that it, that, it, that it presents to your consciousness? I want everything to be fair. Uh, we want, uh, in America, the emphasis has been so much on individual rights, privileges, freedom, equality uh, for the individual. So that this, this is very much a cultural, what um, the United States of America was set up on these principles of, of personal freedom and liberty, individual rights and privileges. Fair enough, those are good enough ideals. But without wisdom, what happens? When there's no wisdom, no Dhamma in it, then it just makes us very uh, jealous and, and insensitive and, and selfish, doesn't it? We're just thinking of, I have my rights and I want this and it's not fair and, and uh, we just think about ourselves and our rights, what I want. If somebody has else has something better or it's treated better or more fairly, then I want to be treated that way too. And so our, we become so concerned with ourselves, not because the ideals are wrong, but because there's a lack of wisdom, lack of understanding of the nature of desire and selfishness and greed and hatred. So as meditators now, Buddhist meditators, investigate this. So you, you, not to, not with, be careful not to, to watch the subtlety of investigation in order to get rid of desires. That's not what I'm saying. Really look at desire. So desire and then 
contemplate it. What does it feel like? What is it like as a mood, as an experience? Now when I do that, it, I definitely see I get weary of it. It's, a, it's the nipita comes up. It's boring to live, a, to live in the state of desiring things. It's so weary and so unpleasant to, to just spend your life always wanting or not wanting something, complaining and whining and whinging and, and blaming and, and demanding and feeling sorry for oneself. And, and all this is such unpleasant conditions to have to live with and, and be with as a kind of continuous uh, diet. So when we see the nature of desire and grasping, then, then the insight is letting go, abandoning it, leaving it go, putting it down, releasing our grasp from it. And then when we let go of desire, that takes us to the... To the uh, realization of non-attachment. So the, the grasping of desire, the, the recognition uh, and investigation and understanding of desire and grasping leads to weariness of it, nipida, which means that we let go And then when there's non-attachment, we realize non-attachment, which is the neuroda, or the cessation of suffering, or the cessation of desire. So when, we, when, we, when there's non-attachment, then desire, suffering ceases. And the, that's the realization of no desire, of desirelessness, or non-suffering. That's the third noble truth. And that is, is also to, to, to note the, 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 that how one leads to the other. That, they, that through that mindful reflection on desire, the, the natural uh, result of that is weariness of grasping, the letting go, and then when there's non-attachment, we realize it. If we're, if we're mindful, we realize non-attachment is this way. Desire ceases and we realize non-desire, desirelessness or non-suffering, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, non-grasping, nibbana, is this way. Now with, uh, sometimes the people get confused about 
uh, the, what I'm talking about because so many of, so oftentimes in, uh, in uh, Buddhist circles, I don't think so much in the Mahayana as in the Theravada, there's this kind of assumption that a kind of almost metaphysical doctrine about everything is suffering. And, and we recognize the limits of our, our, our English language when it's translated from, say, Pali to English. Recognize that English is a language that tends to absolutize the relative, isn't it? it the, it's not a, a language that conveys the impermanence and changing nature of anything. It tends to fix on things as if they were kind of absolutized. So that's why we, we, we tend to make assumptions about being an absolute person. I am, or being absolutely this and absolutely that. Right and wrong become absolutes. Good and bad become absolutized. In, uh, it's easy to do that in English because uh, English... Uh, is that kind of a language. It, it tends to make static. It's a, more of a static language than, than a dynamic one. So when you're translating Pali into English equivalent, sometimes it's quite misleading. So say, sape sankara uh, dukkha, say, all conditions are impermanent or all conditions are suffering, gets translated into all, everything is suffering. Everything is, which is not wrong actually, but we have to recognize things is the key word there. It doesn't say things, uh, everything. A thing is a something, is a condition, isn't it? The unconditioned is not a thing. So that all conditions are unsatisfactory, we can say. Sape sankara dukkha. All conditions are, cannot satisfy us, in other words. The conditioned realm of the sensory experience is, is not, cannot give us permanent satisfaction. The best it can do is give us momentary gratification. We get momentarily gratified by by something, and then it, and then, but then it's not satisfying. So that, that that's why wealth and power and and beauty and all the best that that of the conditioned realm is not satisfying us. We can't be satisfied with it. If we expect uh, it to satisfy us, because we 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 think it should, that our satisfaction. We should be permanently satisfied by that which is basically unsatisfactory. That's absurd, isn't it? So when you contemplate, then you, you give up your expectations and demands to be satisfied by what cannot satisfy you. Can another person really satisfy you? How many of you have spent your life looking for the right person? who is going to completely satisfy, like Prince Charming, Cinderella. 
somebody who will love you for your own true self and will completely understand you and and uh, you when you meet you'll know that your your uh, relationship was made in heaven and that you will live happily ever after because you've met the right person that person is going to fulfill you and satisfy you totally and completely and sometimes we meet somebody and we feel that way only to be terribly disappointed because as long as we expect somebody else to satisfy us we're going to be very disappointed and disillusioned because that is something no one can do for us nobody else to put that demand an expectation on another person is really being very unfair. It's not fair. <laughs> that is really not fair to expect anybody else to spend their life satisfying you. That's very selfish and very foolish. And yet we can, a kind of, the kind of immature Cinderella uh, attitude uh, meeting the, the romantic uh, fantasy of meeting somebody who will do that for me. I want you, or I want God, or I want my profession, or I want something. I want a messiah to come, or an avatar, or a guru, or a teacher. Somebody who's going to come and going to never fail me, and never disappoint me, and fulfill me. We heard in, in London a few years ago there's somebody claiming to be the Messiah and Maitreya at the same time. Combined Buddhist Christian, Jewish. It was, uh, it was a kind of hilarious scene where you read in the London newspapers these huge double page advertisements. The, the Messiah arrived in London on 19th of July 1977. That seems to be pretty, you know, that's, that's, that's a fact. It's announcing. <laughs> it's fact. And, and on, you must have had lots of money to be able to buy double page of the uh, observer. <laughs> so you, yeah, and then, then uh, these clues kept building up. Then uh, everybody kept, you know, I could think it would be nice to have a Messiah come. <laughs> I don't mind at all. I wish it would. Straighten up the mess for us. You know, set the tone for the new age and, and uh, get everybody going in the right direction. It'd be great help. And I was all for it, actually. <laughs> but I still had grave suspicions that this was not going to happen. And I was right. <laughs> so the day they, they announced it, they that the, on a such and such a day the Messiah would proclaim himself and that and they're giving clues and, and the one was the funniest clue was that this Messiah lived on Brick Lane which is a kind of slummy part of London and so people were all waiting, wasn't Brick Lane? I wonder who in Brick Lane is and the day they arrived too kind of Pakistani gentlemen both claimed to be the Messiah. <laughs> and started arguing about who was. 
So it kind of fizzled out. <laughs> but it was a good, good uh, experience to witness, too, because uh, at first the, the cynic in me said, oh, silly stuff, because I, I can be quite cynical and I put down such ideas. And I don't believe the Messiah, <laughs> Maitreya, it's all just uh, you know, foolishness. But then I decided, you know, that I wasn't going to just go along with being cynical. I started thinking, well, it would help a lot if there was a Messiah and a Maitreya. It would help a lot to kind of, you know, because everything, in 1977, everything looked, this was 19, he proclaimed in 1979, wasn't it? 84. 84. For that he arrived in seventy seven. Yeah. It was the same year I arrived, in fact. <laughs> so this was this uh idea of a messiah would certainly, uh, uh, you know, if, if it were true, it would certainly be a very good thing. But don't wait for that, because it's, this is like, a, like immaturity, isn't it? Wanting somebody else to come and clean up the mess, to make it right. To, it's like, a, you know, we've made a terrible mess of this planet, and uh, then we're like little kids, hoping mommy and daddy will suddenly come and straighten it up, get us out of the difficulties. Uh, clean up the mess for me. Clean up the mess I've made. Or maybe we should start cleaning up the mess. This is a suggestion to you. <laughs> don't wait for the. Don't sit around waiting for somebody else to do it, because this is something we can do. This is. This is something we definitely can do. This is within our ability as human beings to clean up. At least we can clean up our own mess. That's all that one can expect from, from an individual being. And, and if we do that, then the mess on the wider scale will be cleaned up also. <coughs> when we want somebody else, like a, a, even the Messiah or some saint or somebody else, we give so much importance to the possibility of an enlightened master or a great teacher coming and, and, and uh, making everything right for us. That sometimes we, we don't realize that it's really something we should be doing ourselves and that we can do. example in this retreat, isn't it? It's the more you, you understand what the problem is, then you're not going to create the, the conditions for that problem anymore. Because you, the, the wisdom, we, we can use wisdom with our conscious experience. And th that's why the Buddhist teachings are wisdom teachings. They're not wisdom uh, per se, it's not like the teachings are, 
our wisdom, so you just memorize the teachings. It's not quoting the Buddha and, and memorizing all the things he said and then, then quoting it, but it's actually applying it, putting it into practice. They're, they're practical teachings. They're dynamic teachings. They're teachings that we, we use for investigation, for reflection. They're, they all work as guidelines, as standards, as foundations, as, as, uh, as inspiring goals and as practical, uh, uh, pragmatic conventions and tools to use for our human state in understanding that and being able to learn from our own experience. Learn from the desires you have. Learn from greed. What can you learn from greed is you can learn about greed. Learn from uh, hatred. And what can you learn from hatred? You can learn about hatred. Hatred is like this. When you hate somebody, it's this way. So you, you're, you're not just using words and, uh, and parroting uh, wise teachings, but you're actually applying those teachings to your life. They'll be internalizing them, looking, investigating, watching, listening, attentive to the Dhamma. And this is the way out of suffering. So when we, when we say the conditioned realm is, is, is basically unsatisfying, that's not, a, that's not a kind of blanket statement to be believed, but it is a teaching to be contemplated. What do we mean by that? Is there a condition that is to, going to really satisfy you forever. Tell me, please, if you find one. I've looked for 25 years and haven't found one yet. No condition, no person, no monastery, no teacher, uh, no, no ideal conditions, life at its best, uh, is still unsatisfied in itself, as an end in itself. In England, we live in very nice places. And beautiful monasteries in the countryside. And, and you, you still, you, you, you have a very pleasant life with very good people. People interested in the Dhamma and so forth. And, and when people come to the monastery, they're usually on their best behavior. When people come to the monastery, they, uh, they're trying to be good and act properly, so we see the best side of everyone. What they act like at home, I don't know. <laughs> but generally, we get, uh, they try to, to act their best in, in the monastery. So, and this is, I appreciate that. It's very nice to live in a place where people are trying to rise up and, and act in a, in a good way. But as an end in itself, even the most harmonious and pleasant human community and social environment uh, is not satisfactory in itself as an end. There's still something missing, something lacking. So when we, when we expect or demand from others or from our monastic communities or 
uh, whatever, for them to satisfy us and to, to uh, make us feel secure and happy and solve all our problems, then we somehow have missed the whole point of the Buddha's teaching. We've just been a, a, a foolish person who's going to be terribly disappointed and disillusioned with it. So in, in Buddhist, say, the idea of, a, uh, say, in Buddhist monasticism is to be content with what is offered, not to, to try, that doesn't mean you, you don't, that you feel content all the time, it means that's a, that's a reflection, so that more and more you, you let go of the desire to have the best, or to have things that you don't have, or to have better things than the ones you have. You, you investigate those desires so you get weary of them. And then there is a real sense of gratitude for the kindness, the generosity uh, that has been given, uh, all the things given to one to help one in the holy life, and a sense of contentment with the, what one does have not demanding, not expecting, uh, not creating desires for other, more, better conditions. So now this, this evening and tomorrow to keep uh, with, the, with the metta practice, calming this sense of well-being Practice that uh, regularly the, to uh, to just uh, the the posture of the body and the and the breathing of your body use as a uh, as an object to this sense of may I abide in well being having this this feeling of goodwill towards your physical formation towards your your individual being towards yourself. And then, when there is a sense of calm and and uh, or things start happening, like you feel annoyance or you feel bored or you feel confused or desire you desire to get something or get rid of something, then you can reflect on it in this way as to to really get to know the desire as desire and patiently abiding with that desire, you let go of it and you realize desirelessness is like this. Desirelessness is very peaceful. Desire is, is not peaceful. So one bears with desire and and aware of it when it's present, and aware of non-desire when it's, when it's absent, because desire is impermanent, and desire is anatta, not self. So I offer this for your reflection. <coughs>